Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Quranic interpretation in contemporary societies is shaped in a multitude of ways. There are educational institutions that inform how one understands the text, linguistic hurdles for readers and commentators, publicly accessible forms of media, editors and translators that shape what audience have access to, and global interpretive positions among various Muslim denominations. In Muslim Quranic interpretation today, media, genealogies, and interpretive communities Johanna Pink explores the rich and varied expressions of Quranic materials and places them within these frameworks. The volume takes a genealogical approach to numerous contemporary case studies to see where they come together and where they diverge in their assumptions, hermeneutics, and conclusions. Pink demonstrates that tensions around the Quran today extend from questions about who has the authority to interpret or what is the best method to do so and the growing number of commentarial genres, including numerous recent media spaces available to new types of interpreters. In our conversation, we discuss the factor shaping a contemporary interpretive position, the legacy of the pre-modern tafsir tradition, Ibn Kathir, the Quran as source of guidance for everyday life, comics, Quran translations, televangelism, new media and online commentary, the use of scientific language to account for the Quran, gender relations, modernist, Islamist, and postmodern interpretations. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Now, my conversation with Johanna Pink about Muslim Quranic interpretation today, media, genealogies, and interpretive communities published with Equinox Publishing in 2018. Welcome, Johanna. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. This is a really exciting book. I'm excited to talk to you about it. You cover a lot of ground. Uh, But before we get into the book, we always start with a little bit about our author. And while you've been on the show before, uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Islamic studies, and then perhaps how you got interested in the study of Quran more particularly. From the outset, I think my decision to do Islamic studies had a lot to do with my fascination with language. Um, I wanted to learn Arabic, and I also learned Persian and Turkish during my studies. And after my MA, I had a period of time where I was waiting for scholarship confirmations. I studied Bahasa Indonesia. Um, so I was really, um, I really wanted to learn languages and also non-European languages. And I was also very much fascinated with religion. So it seemed like an ideal combination. Um, and then I did my PhD actually on a topic that only required me to work with Arabic sources um, about new religious communities in Egypt. So that was totally unrelated to the Quran. But then when I started teaching as a lecturer in Berlin, like 14 years ago, I started teaching classes on the Quran and Quranic exegesis. And I noticed that there was not a lot of good literature around, um, or like very satisfactory literature um, on Tafsir, both on the history and on the modern period. So there, there were some publications on specific topics such as gender, but I wasn't really very satisfied with the state of the field. Um, and then I also, in Germany, you have to do another book after your PhD in order to be eligible to come, become a professor. Um, and it has to be on a completely different field. So I started thinking about doing this. And then I also realized that this would allow me to engage with more languages, not just Arabic, but also the other languages I had learned, um, which was really exciting. And 
another thing was that at that point I had two small children and later on I had a third one um, and I couldn't really do any topics that would require me to do extensive field work abroad. Um, so working with text was also kind of ideal at that point. Um, so yeah, this is when I started working on modern Quranic commentaries, um, like around 12 years ago. And from the beginning, I was particularly interested in looking at works from different regions and in different languages um, and seeing like what shared traditions they use and also what distinguishes them. Um, and this is kind of a theme that I've been pursuing since then. This really comes through in the work. Uh, you cover a really broad uh, set of case studies uh, coming from a number of different languages. Um, and you've really done a very excellent job. So one of the main uh, arguments of the book is this idea or uh, tension between authority and interpretation. So can you tell us about how one's social location or perceived audiences, um, perhaps the systems of power in which they are working, um, how do these things shape one's interpretive position? Yeah, um, I mean, this was one of the central ideas of my book that, um, of course, I also discuss hermeneutical approaches, which is usually what um, publications on modern Quranic exegesis focus on. Um, and, of course, it's, it's important. I mean, of course, you have d completely different hermeneutical approaches everywhere and they clash. Um, but I also wanted to to tell readers more about structural issues that inform um, exegetical debates and um, yeah that that put certain positions in a position uh, certain certain approaches in a position of dominance for example and that cause certain conflicts and um, this includes the nation state um, with its educational institutions um, politics of religion um, also language politics, like in what languages do you actually publish your works on Quranic exegesis? Um, and it also involves, um, of course, denominational divisions. It involves gender, like who has got the authority to talk about the Quran, who is granted the, the authority by others, um, and who is denied it. Um, and also media. So this, this is really something that I find quite fascinating that, um, I mean, a lot of studies of Quranic exegesis focus on books, um, Quranic commentaries or books on hermeneutics. But today we have so much more. We have got um, tafsir on YouTube. We've got apps um, that a lot of people use um, that include the Quran and um, interpretations of the Quran and translations of the Quran and recitations and so on. And there's not a lot of research on this. Um, so I wanted to to look at all these things and kind of, yeah, explore how they interact. One of the things you did that I found really productive about the work was you, you approached each case study through this uh, genealogical approach. Um, so I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit about uh, what did this method allow you to do in relation to this kind of wide range of, of case studies that you're looking at? Um, what, what might we be looking for through a genealogical approach? Yeah, um, so my starting point was actually in the very early stages when I started working on this book, I wanted to to do a reader. Um, so I started translating texts and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll basically publish a reader of these texts for as a resource for teaching because that, was, that had always been missing, I think, um, and with just a very brief introduction and commentary. And then Walid Saleh actually told me, you, you really need to write an introduction to the whole thing and give your perspective on the state of the field. And then the introduction grew longer and longer, and I started thinking about what I was doing. And then I got some feedback um, from people who told me, um, okay, this doesn't work anymore. Like you have basically a two-part book. One part is the very long introduction, and the other part is the translated sources. And then I decided to to restructure the whole thing and build it into, into a coherent narrative. And the one thing that I really um, that I really didn't want to do was um, which is commonly done is accounts of modern Quranic interpretation start 
in the late 19th century with Muhammad Abdu and Syed Ahmad Khan and, and so on, so with the early modernists. And then they go on to tell the story um, until they arrive at some point in the present or near the present. Um, so this is, I mean, in Foucauldian terms, this would be an archaeological approach. Um, and I think this is problematic because this rests on a number of assumptions that might not necessarily be, um, well, maybe they are true to a certain extent, but they don't go far enough. Um, for example, the assumption that there's a clear-cut division between the pre-modern and the modern period, and you can just start at some point in time, and at that point everything changes, and you don't need to look at the stuff that happened before. But when you go into a bookshop in any Muslim-majority country today, actually, and you ask for a good Quranic commentary, they will give you the work of Ibn Kathir, who was a Mamluk scholar from the 14th century. Um, this is very, I've, I've tried it in Indonesia, I've tried it in Egypt, students of mine have tried it in Jordan, I've tried it in Tunisia, it happened everywhere. So um, this division is really problematic. Even if you look at discussions on the Quran in message boards among Muslims today, for example, you will find names such as Atabari, 10th century, or Ibn Kathir, much more often than the names of contemporary exegetes. So I decided to start from exegetical, um, well, exegetical sources in the widest sense of the word that have been produced in the 2000s and 2010s, so really in a very recent period, and then looked, as you said, on their genealogy, like um, where, do, where, do, where do these ideas come from? What kind of um, topics do they use? Uh, what kind of methods and explanatory strategies do they use and what is the history of this? So I think this is a completely different perspective than what has been done before on Quranic exegesis in the modern period. And I think it's a very interesting perspective. I could imagine this being really useful in a classroom and hopefully the publishers will uh, print the book in a, an inexpensive paperback so we can we can all use it. In setting up the remainder of the book, you help us think about this distinction between uh, the pre-modern types of uh, commentary and a uh, modern type of interpretation. So can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, common assumptions or uh, strategies used by modern interpreters? What types of shifts are happening in the, the modern period that make Muslims want to use the Quran as a source for uh, for guidance for everyday life? Yeah, um, I think what happened in the late 19th, early 20th century was really a qualitative change in how people dealt with the Quran. I mean, of course, the Quran has always been really hugely important to Muslims, um, but it's been used in, in different ways. And I think in the pre-modern period, it has rarely been used in this Protestant sense as a scripture that you read and use. Um, to like find answers to your everyday problems or to questions of faith or whatever. I mean, even in Muslim scholarship, um, people actually drew on the commentary tradition. So this was a common complaint of reformers that students didn't actually read the Quran. They read um, a Quranic commentary or the commentary on the commentary. Mm. Um, so they didn't look directly at the sources in order to find answers to their religious questions. Um, and this was what a lot of reformers around the turn of the 20th century were criticizing. Um, and this has deeply affected, I think, the ways in which Muslims are dealing with the Quran today. I, of course, it's still important um, for recitation, um, for in prayer, in all kinds of ritual. Um, and you still have stuff like talismanic uses, although it might have become less important than it um, used to be like 200 years ago. But that depends a lot on, I mean, what place you look at, of course. Um, but what you have today is a lot of Muslims who look at the Quran um, and want to understand its message, actually. So this is also why Quran translations are so pervasive today. Um, we have a pre-modern tradition of translation, but that was mostly in educational contexts, and that was closely tied to the commentary tradition. Um, and it was not so much about deriving a message from the Quran. It was more about understanding the grammar, for example, um, 
or knowing all the exegetical traditions on something in the Quran on a certain exegetical problem, um, not necessarily with the aim of giving you a solution to a problem or something. Um, yeah, so in that sense, um, one of the lasting contributions of the modernists around the turn of the 20th century was really this idea to use the Quran as a source of guidance, which was then also really important to um, political Islam. Uh, and it's also important to Salafis, of course. So this is really something that you find across various trends um, of um, hermeneutical trends and ways in, in which Muslims approach the Quran. Now, you've already pointed to this uh, a little bit already, uh, the importance of the pre-modern tafsir tradition today. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what's the role of editors and translators in mediating this uh, uh, pre-modern tradition to contemporary uh, Quran interpreters? Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, uh, one thing that is important to me is to point out that the tradition of pre-modern tafsir has never actually ceased to exist. So until this day, we have ulama who write Quranic commentaries in a very traditional way, which is um, they take the Quran first by first or segment by segment and then comment on it and drew on all the different sources that pre-modern exegetes also used. I mean, their pool of sources might differ a bit, but that's normal. I mean, that was also the case in the pre-modern era. Um, so we have this, and then at the same time, um, we have the continuing importance of certain pre-modern works of exegesis. Um, and the most important one today is, Definitely the Quranic commentary by Ibn Kathir, which I've already mentioned. Um, and one thing that I explored in my book is um, how it became so important. Um, and I'm still working on this, actually. I'm probably going to publish more on this. Um, so it, Ibn Kathir was considered by the early reformers, like in the first third of the 20th century, to be the most Salafi exeget, so in the sense that he mostly drew on the Quran and um, the traditions about the Prophet Muhammad and not so much on um, scholastic theology, for example, um, or what they called Israeliyat, so like traditions of dubious Jewish or Christian provenance. Um, so this is why they um, promoted Ibn Kathir, and um, very early on there were... Um, printed editions of Ibn Kathir that were for the first time maybe in the history of um, Tafsir targeted at ordinary Muslims without uh, training as a religious scholar. Um, and this was hugely important, but then um, this continued um, by abridged editions and um, translations that more and more try to turn Ibn Kathir into a textbook that can be used by anyone. I mean, the, the original work is actually a very scholarly commentary and he has a lot of, he addresses a lot of things that you just don't understand if you're not familiar with the exegetical tradition and the debates that um, are negotiated here. Um, and of course, the modern editions and translations, which very often come from a Salafi background, from Salafi publishers, editors and translators, um, they try to make this accessible to everyone. And they also try to eliminate material that could, uh, for example, um, give the impression that certain Quranic verses are ambiguous or even contradictory um, or that there's a big controversy on what the Quran means um, stuff like that, or that there's a close proximity between the Quran and the Bible, which is also something that a lot of Salafi publishers have a problem with. Um, and I looked at one English translation that's very popular, and you can find it on the internet and in um, apps and all kinds of sources, um, which is a, it's an abridged translation of the commentary of Ibn Kathir, and there it's, the Salafi agenda is very clear. Um, so it's not just made more easier and more accessible. It's also adapted to what contemporary Salafis think Ibn Kathir should have done, which is, a, which is a really interesting phenomenon because the people who use this work probably still have the impression that they are actually dealing with Ibn Kathir and not with uh, some kind of Salafi representation of Ibn Kathir. In many of the examples you use, 
uh, media became a strong through line for the project. So can you talk about the types of media that we find Quranic interpretation in? And what would you say is the impact of uh, audiovisual types of Quranic interpretation? First of all, I have to point out that I'm very hesitant about about talking uh, to talk about impact because I can't really measure this. I mean, you would have to do like ethnographic studies or something to to actually see what impact these things have. So the most I can do is look at, I don't know, how many clicks does a video have on YouTube or something. Um, but still, yeah, um, I think what, what interests me a lot is how um, different types of media interact and also how they change uh, the reception of exegetical works and also their perception. So um, as I already like kind of hinted at when I talked about Ibn Kathir, um, the first threshold was that of print. And actually it was very important. Um, it's very important to, to ask what works of Quranic exegesis were printed and what works were not printed because the, those works that were not printed early on um, remained obscure for a very long time. And only in the past like 20 years, maybe we've got a new um, movement, especially in the Arab world to have more texts printed. Um, but things that remained as manuscripts very quickly um, were out of use. I mean, nobody had access to them anymore. Um, so, but then we had um, the advent of mass media, um, which started with journals. I think we already have a new type of exegesis at the moment when um, intellectuals started publishing their interpretation of the Quran in journals. Um, this happened already in the early 20th century in journals such as Almanar, and it has been continued until today, basically. But of course, um, in the second half of the 20th century, other media such as radio and television became more important, um, and they opened the way to new forms of preaching about the Quran. Um, so this is a completely different type of doing exegesis than what you find in Quranic commentaries. Um, it, it often consists of a very, I mean, exhortations, obviously, but it's also very associative in style. So um, the exeget will not just give a rigorous explanation of a first, but also t- tell stories and make jokes and whatever. Talk about things that come to mind when he mentions a specific term from the Quran and so on. Um, so it's also in a way meant to be entertaining um, and at the same time, of course, religiously edifying. Um, and this is a completely new way of of doing exegesis. Um, it's also, I mean, for a long time, I think until the 2000s, it used to be a fairly exclusive way because, I mean, in order to have access to television, actually, um, you need to be well-connected, you need to be um, politically acceptable, especially if it's, I mean, in a dictatorial regime, which you have in a lot of countries with a Muslim majority. Um, and it's expensive to produce such a show, so it really has to sell. So they usually only pick celebrities. Um, and this, of course, has changed completely in the past 15 to 20 years because now everybody has the, the opportunity to publish on YouTube, in blogs, um, in all kinds of online formats. Um, and this has led to a huge um, expansion of the field of exegesis, but also. Of course, it's more and more difficult to say which of these um, which of these texts really matter. Um, we also have a lot of changes connected to the pedagogical sector. For example, comic books and illustrations used to be completely uncommon, and they've been increasingly used in editions of the Quran and translations for children, um, which is very interesting. Um, and then we have a lot of instances where different media actually interact. So I've got one example of an Iranian exegete who, who lives in the U.S. now, and he has Persian and English versions of his tafsir. He has written versions, audio versions, which are based on talks he gave, um, and these have been incorporated in an app. Um, so it's very diverse, and they all 
differ a bit from each other depending on the type of media in the audience and the kind of editing you can do, which is different with an audio file than with a written text where you can, I mean, with an audio file, you can maybe cut things, but you can't like completely edit your talk unless you want to completely record it anew. But uh, with the text, it's much easier. So in the end, what you get is a completely different result. With the democratization of Quranic interpretation, uh, many of these new interpreters take what you describe as a modernist uh, interpretive standpoint. So what would you say characterizes a modernist approach? What are some of their assumptions uh, or strategies they use when interpreting the Quran? Well, modernist approaches, I mean, basically you find them in all kinds of exegetical genres. Um, not so much in conventional works of tafsir, which are really done first by first, actually. Um, these are more often done by um, traditional ulama or by Salafis, for example, uh, but mostly by traditional ulama. Um, what modernists um, often do is, um, I mean, modernists try to... Um, generally read the Quran in a way that makes it um, compatible with the needs and demands of Muslims living today. Um, and they also tend to read it in a more egalitarian manner than traditional ulama or Salafis or Islamists, for example. So they try to find ideas of uh, gender equality, for example, in the Quran. Uh, they very often also have a strong focus on um, pluralism, um, interreligious tolerance. Um, and um, they tend to not take everything in the Quran literally, but um, look or read it more in the light of some presumed higher aim. Um, they also favor historical contextualization, like, for example, saying this first about marriage uh, made total sense in the 7th century context. Um, but if we look at its meaning today, we don't have to apply it literally. We should rather look at the motivation behind it, at the general idea uh, of what marriage should be, and then we can adapt this to the needs of a modern society. So this is something that modernists very often do. Um, and um, they also often try to find an original meaning in terms that are used in the Quran, which might be different from the meaning that most Muslims assign to it. For example, the word Islam, um, you would commonly define as a specific religion which considers Muhammad a prophet and the Quran a scripture, etc., etc. Um, modernists would say the original meaning is submission to God. So when the Quran talks about Islam or Muslims, this could include Jews and Christians, for example really anyone, is, anyone who submits to God and has a monotheistic religion in some way. Um, and, yeah, they are often also very skeptical about um, using the traditions about the Prophet Muhammad extensively. Um, and some of the genres that have come out of this, although these are not exclusive to modernists, but they are particularly popular, um, include um, thematic tafsir, so you don't interpret the Quran first by first, but you look at specific themes, such as women in the Quran, um, or Christians in the Quran, um, or the tafsir in the order of revelation. Um, so you rearrange the Quran, you don't interpret it in its canonical order, which is not chronological, but you arrange it in some presumed chronological order, um, and then the idea is that you can see the historical evolution of the Quranic message. And although I would argue that this latter strategy, it's still in its infancy. And so far, we don't have any authors that have drawn like really excessively modernist conclusions from this. Another aspect of the project is the emergence of Islamist movements and their views on the Quran. So how do you define uh, Islamism for your project how do they understand the Quran? How might they uh, defend their interpretations of it? I, yeah, I would argue that the Islamist approach is characterized by um, a very strong preoccupation with creating an Islamic society and creating an Islamic state. So 
um, one of the goals, their goals when they read the Quran is to find um, guidance regarding the creation of this Islamic society and the creation of this Islamic state. Um, and um, they are also characterized by a particular set of authorities, which includes uh, Said Qutb, the famous e Egyptian um, member of the Muslim Brotherhood who wrote an extensive tafsir, and also the South Asian scholar Abul Alan Modudi, um, who also wrote a book called Tafim al-Quran, Understanding the Quran. Um, and yeah, Islamists usually also have a very strong apologetic perspective. So they try to, they tend to defend the Quran against, um, I mean, accusations, but also very often against modernizing approaches because they um, see this as a kind of criticism of the Quran. So when a modernist, for example, says we have to redefine the relationship between husband and wife and we can't just take um, the Quran's perspective literally because it's a 7th century perspective and it's not appropriate to today and it's not really what God wanted us to do, etc., then Islamists would tend to feel um, that this is kind of um, implying that the Quran is not perfect, that the Quran is not an inter in eternal and universal message to all of mankind. Um, and they would tend to rather defend the rules in the Quran. So modernists, for example, would question whether polygamy is really prescriptive for all kinds, uh, for all times and all people. And Islamists would tend to defend polygamy as something that might not be ideal, but might be the only solution, even today in many cases, etc., etc., and might even conform to, um, I don't know, hormones of men and women. I, this is also something that you can find particularly often in Islamist interpretation. It's a, a strong inclination to connect the Quran with modern science in some way, to use modern science or pseudo-scientific arguments to... Um, defend things in the Quran uh, and also sometimes not ev not everyone um, does this Said could for example didn't do this but um, a lot of Islamists do this they try to um, show that the Quran already predicted um, scientific discoveries of the 20th or 21st century so which is then proof of its miraculous nature and its divine origin Another major component of the book is this relationship between language and place and the role of translation uh, and linguistic context for, for thinking about interpretation. So what are some of the social factors that shape the possibilities of interpretation? And is, is there a kind of back and forth between these local interpretive communities um, and the global reception of the Quran? Yeah, there are a lot of those and they have I mean, they always have to do with the question of who is going to read a certain Quranic interpretation or consume it in some other way. I mean, because I also have videos and audios and whatever. Um, and who's going to accept it as authoritative or who's going to debate it. And there are a lot of factors that come into this. Language is one of them. Um, and I mean, of course, Arabic is very authoritative until today. Um, and works that have been written in Arabic run a much higher chance of being read in Turkey or Indonesia, for example, than the other way around, which practically, I mean, it practically doesn't happen that an, an Arab scholar will read um, something that has been written in Indonesian. But Indonesian scholars usually are fluent in Arabic and they read a lot of um, things that have been written by Arab scholars. Uh, but then this hierarchy of languages um, is complicated by a lot of factors today. One of them is the nation state, which might impose its own um, hierarchies of language. And these also influence the prestige that certain languages have, which again influences their use and the familiarity of intellectuals and scholars with them. So in Indonesia, for example, Bahasa Indonesia is used for writing um, and has much more prestige for this today than um, the dozens and hundreds of regional and local languages spoken in Indonesia. Um, so if a scholar writes a Quranic commentary in Javanese, um, it won't be read as much as something that has been written in Bahasa Indonesia. And then on the other hand, we have the hierarchies imposed by the colonial empires. Um, 
with the result that English today is maybe the most important language of Islam in terms of the number of texts uh, that are produced and the number of debates, um, religious debates we have in this language, and the number of Muslims from across the world that speak and read this language. Um, it's presumably even more important than Arabic today in some ways, although it doesn't carry the same religious prestige. And to a lesser extent, this is also true for French and Russian, for example, um, which creates very interesting dynamics. Um, so um, this is one important structure. Um, and then, of course, the nation states create boundaries, they create institutions, they create circles of scholarship that interact with each other, but not necessarily with outsiders. So there's a specific Turkish discourse on the Quran, which is shaped by, for example, the curricula of theological faculties in Turkish universities, um, but also, of course, political um, political debates, the political context, um, social developments in Turkey that won't necessarily make sense to a Muslim from Pakistan, for example. Um, and then besides all this, of course, we have clashes between different types of Muslims. Um, I consciously didn't start out by making a division between Shi'i exegesis, Sunni exegesis, mystical exegesis, etc., because I um, I think it would be wrong to start with the assumption that this is always the most important dividing line. Um, and it, it, it is not always the most important one. We have, we've got a lot of exegesis done by Shi'is, which is practically indistinguishable from exegesis done by Sunnis, unless it touches upon one of the few real points of contention between these denominations. Um, and in these cases, of course, it plays a role. So this is also something I discuss, of course. Um, like what role does a mystical, esoteric interpretation play today? Um, and for example, the conflicts between the Ahmadiyya movement and other branches of Islam, where the Islamicity of the Ahmadiyya movement is actually often contested. One case study that I found really interesting because it tied together lots of the themes throughout the book, such as the role of media and the context of uh, national and linguistic boundaries, um, and in this case, also the role of gender. Um, so you, you talk about uh, Jamal Noor, a, uh, a Quran interpreter and a Sufi leader in Turkey. Um, how does she play out in thinking about Quranic interpretation within all of these overlapping contexts in which you set the book up? She's a modern Sufi sheikh, a female Sufi sheikh, actually kind of a celebrity in the Turkish Islamic field and not so well known outside the Turkish field because she's, I mean, all everything she does is in Turkish. She doesn't even read Arabic as far as I know. Um, and she was born into a family that was affiliated with the, the Rifa'iyya Sufi order. But um, of course, at a time, I mean, um, she was born in 1952. So that was a time when Sufism wasn't very fashionable. Um, but when she was a grown-up, she, she started discovering her Sufi leanings uh, through Turkish translation of Jalal din of Rumi's poetry. Um, she studied with a Sufi sheikh, and she gathered a lot of students. Um, and now she has a lot of public events, television shows. Um, and then there are, of course, all kinds of other media, such as books and booklets that emerge from these sessions. Um, and the thing that's interesting is that um, her approach is really appealing to middle and upper class Muslims um, for a number of reasons, I think. First of all, because she very much focuses on like insp inspirational Sufi readings of verses. So um, it's not so much about the literal meaning. It's more about the spiritual dimension. Um, and while she says you should follow the um, like Islamic law, the prescriptions of Islamic law, and so on. That's simply not her focus. Um, and she also says there there are different ways in which you can approach God, and you can do it at a different speech, which in Turkey, for example, is very relevant for the question whether women wear a headscarf or not. Um, and so even non-headscarf-wearing women 
when they study with her, they can get the impression that they are on the right path and maybe they do it in a different way or at a different speed. And even she, she herself doesn't wear a headscarf. So obviously this is not so much about external attributes um, and following some external rules, but it's really more described as a spiritual path, which is very attractive to a certain audience. Um, but also something that has to be understood. I mean, it has to be understood both from the history of Sufi exegesis, which is a context in which um, her exegesis is clearly embedded and that she draws on very much. But at the same time, it's, um, it has to be understood in the very specific social context in, in which she is successful today, which is um, modern Turkish upper and middle class society. In another section of the book, you focus on topics of debate or conflict. Um, and in one case, you talk about questions of uh, sexuality. And you use the case study of an Indonesian scholar working in America, writing back to an Indonesian audience. Um, and this was a really fascinating uh, example, I thought, uh, because it's really tying in this local and global and issues of uh, traditional types of interpretation and modernist type of interpretation. So what might the Indonesian case study tell us about these types of interpretive conflicts? This was actually a debate about um, the rights of LGBTQ Muslims, or well, mostly LGB, I would say. Um, and this is, a, this is something that... Um, I mean, um, male, male, or female, female sexual relationships are not actually outlawed in Indonesia, but uh, it's a conservative society, and um, they are very much disapproved of. Um, and in the past years, we've had increasingly hysterical um, debates on, um, like, the influence of... Um, gay and lesbian Indonesians and the corruption of society and um, also like conspiracy theories about Western influences that want to um, undermine Indonesian Muslim values, etc. Um, and there was one such in incident, which was also termed a moral panic by some observers um, in 2016. And in the middle of this very heated debate, um, Monem Siri published an article in an in a kind of um, op-ed website um, that was widely read, um, in which he um, argued that the Quran doesn't actually prohibit male-male um, sexual relationship. That the whole story of Lot, which is usually um, cited as the main um, main argument for prohibition of homosexuality. By Muslims, um, and Munem Suri says that this whole story doesn't actually talk about homosexuality at all. That it talks about other things, such as rape, for example, which is clearly prohibited, um, and that basically the Quran doesn't address um, the legality of male-male or female-female marriage at all. Um, so, um, while extramarital sexual relations are clearly forbidden in the Quran. It would be up to a society, to each society, to decide um, whether to allow um, homosexual marriage or same-sex marriage. Um, and if they allowed this, then Islam wouldn't have a problem with um, like two married men having intercourse with each other. Um, and so, this um, a lot of his arguments actually um, on the Quran were based on American literature. Um, on same-sex relations and Islam, especially the book by Scott Kugel. Um, and of course, there was a severe backlash in Indonesia, and there were a lot of debates also on his, um, on his hermeneutical approach. Um, and I think one crucial issue that came up was whether the Quran actually has an extremely binary worldview where... where um, God creates everything in pairs, and these pairs are always male-female, and whether this isn't, I mean, totally apart from how you interpret the story of Lord, whether this doesn't mean that um, only male-female relationships should be permitted and so on. So some of these debates were actually very deep, but most of them were also extremely 
polemical. Um, and this again shows that we have a lot of global influences at the moment, so it's, it's hardly possible to look at a local um, debate um, and neglect the global context and the, um, the ideas that come into it. But at the same time, it's also clearly very localized because, um, I mean, he published in Indonesian in, on an Indonesian website and all the responses were in Indonesian by other Indonesians and so on. And they were clearly mostly concerned with um, how to handle um, same-sex relationships in Indonesian society. Johanna, there's really so much to this book, and one of the strengths are really all these detailed case studies which you help us analyze and contextualize for us. Um, so there's probably lots to cover in the book. Um, are there any other takeaways you want readers to know about uh, that we haven't got to address uh, already? Yeah, there's one thing that's important to me, and that's um, the more I was thinking about my case studies and the different exegetical approaches, the more it became apparent to me that there's one extremely important um, division that's only just emerging, and that is between approaches that believe in one true meaning of the Quran, which exegetes have to uncover, but which is already there, um, and those exegetes who have ceased to believe that such a you, you know, um, that such a true meaning is really um, there or, I mean, or some believe that it's there, but it, only God can know. So for for humans, it's impossible to ever uncover it. Um, I call this approach postmodern, and I think it's very much connected to the new developments in media. Um, for example, we have an increasing number of um, Quranic interpretations that emerge from blogs, which are by definition a very personal type of media. So people more and more engage with their biography, their experiences, their conscience, their personal convictions. Um, I have one example um, of a German exeget with, of Turkish origin, um, but he grew up in Germany and he engaged with Quran 551, which um, he was told as a child forbids him from taking non-Muslims as friends. Uh, and this was a big problem for him because he was growing up in a non-Muslim majority society and practically all his friends were non-Muslims. Um, so starting from that, he started to engage with Quranic exegesis. Um, and the solutions he came up with, he never claimed that these are the true, this, this is the true solution, this is the true meaning, and exegetes have got it wrong for 1,400 years, and now I'm telling you what it really means like modernists actually tend to do. Um, but it's more like he, he says, this is my perspective on the text as a reader. Um, and these perspectives change and they legitimately change. Um, so it's it's totally okay for an exeget 700 years ago to have had a different interpretation of this verse. Um, and maybe my interpretation is only temporal as well. And 100 or 500 years from now, Muslims will read it differently. And that's also okay. Um, so this is why I um, I call this approach postmodern, and I think it's growing. I have a number of examples of um, people who start applying this more and more, um, and that's a fundamental difference to modernists, I think, who um, often agree with the postmodernists in their agenda and their aims and uh, the outcome they want to reach when they interpret the Quran, um, but they tend to claim that this is the true meaning of the Quran. The Quran was always in favor of liberating women. It has never been legitimate to read it in a different way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and postmodernists would say, "Okay, how how can we be so sure that everybody has been wrong and now we are right? Um, we are just readers of the Quran, and this is our understanding." Yeah, and I think this great. is going to happen more and more in the future, and deserves more research. This was a really interesting and useful part of the book, and I'm glad you brought it up here. Um, you're always working on exciting things. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you have lined up for the future in terms of your scholarship? Yeah, at the moment, actually, um, what I'm very excited about is a project I have obtained funding for from the European Union, um, a lot of funding, actually, um, like 2 million euro. Um, and it's a project that's going to run for five years. We've just started on the 1st of May, and it's called the Global Quran. Um, 
and it's going to look at Quran translations in the 20th and 21st century um, from different perspectives, but um, the main areas of research concern um, the exegetical tradition um, and what role it plays for translating the Quran in different contexts and how it connects um, translations in different languages and also how it divides them. Uh, then we look at institutional actors such as the King Fahd complex for the printing of the Holy Quran in Medina, which um, or similar institutions now exist in Iran, in Turkey, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in a lot of countries and have never been really studied. Uh, we look at the impact of missionary movements, including the Ahmadiyya movements, which have been very important to the uh, modern history of Quran translations, but not really been properly explored, I think. Um, and we also look at the role of imperial languages, um, which I've already mentioned, um, such as English, which really has become a global Muslim language, um, and also French and Russian. Um, so we are just starting, and um, we are also active on social media, so you can follow us on Twitter or on Facebook. Um, we are publishing a feature that's called Quran Translation of the Week every Friday, and um, yeah, maybe some listeners would like to follow us. Um, I'd be glad, and um, I'm really, really looking forward to the next five years and to doing this project. These all sound like exciting collaborations, and I'm excited to see how your work uh, turns out. Hopefully, we can have you back for a future episode. Thanks again for making the time to talk about this wonderful book. Yeah, thanks for inviting me and giving me this opportunity. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Johanna Pink about Muslim Quranic interpretation today, Media, Genealogies, and Interpretive Communities, published with Equinox Publishing in 2018.